Scripture comes from Book of Acts, chapter 9, 1 through 19. Um, if you, you can follow along on your, in your bulletins or screen above or your mobile devices. <coughs> Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered, the Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. This is the word of God. Amen. Good to see all of you um, here at New Mercy, because we've been so fortunate and blessed with amazing numerous speakers that... um, even though we really, really want to, sometimes it's hard to preach back-to-back, but I get to do it. <laughs> so I'm very uh, blessed and uh, fortunate to be up here to share with you uh, along, going along in the book of Acts as we read through chapter 7, and now we are chapter 9, and today we look at the conversion story of Saul, and last week we looked at the life of Stephen. For those of you who haven't been here at New Mercy, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we call it book studies, where we literally go through a book, and we go not by chapter by chapter, because it would just take too long, but we take some of the prominent stories and narratives out from the book of Acts, and we've been going over them. And we've titled this, Ordinary People, Extraordinary God, because the book of Acts is about how the church, the larger church, right, the capital C, and churches in Lower Sea have been spread and how the message of the gospel message uh, through missionaries were spread after Jesus Christ's resurrection 
right? And how the Spirit moves people. So the church movement through the God's disciples and Jesus' disciples is really what the book is all about. So it's really about how extraordinary God uses ordinary people to share the message of the gospel throughout the Middle East and therefore throughout the world. So let's dive right in today as we are in chapter 9 in Saul's conversion, a pivotal moment in not just church history, but how it ties to the stories that we read before and how it also ties to us. So let us pray one more time as we invite the Spirit to join us. Lord, we thank you that you're an awesome, amazing God who allows us to lift up your name. May your presence be here as we honor and worship you. May your ears be pleased with the words that are spoken and words that are heard today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So one of the common themes that we've been touching upon over and over again, especially last week as we read Acts 7, is that it cost everything to follow Jesus Christ. We saw that in chapter 7 as Stephen was stoned to death. He literally gave up his life at that moment. Though it was a short life that he lived, boldly claiming Jesus Christ before the Sanhedrin, right, the leaders of the Jews, who falsely accused him, put him on a false trial, and then stoned him to death. In a similar way, we meet another man named Saul, eventually called Paul, who gives everything that he has to follow Jesus Christ. Perhaps not the way Stephen faced it and experienced it, but as we read in today's uh, uh, scripture, that in verse 16, that Saul will suffer much for God's name. So he suffers and he gives all that he has throughout his life. And he eventually receives persecution for his faith himself. So Acts 9 describes a pivotal moment in, in which Saul transforms from being the least likely person ever to accept Jesus Christ as Savior to the most influential, prominent missionary written in human history. Many Christian scholars actually argue that Saul's conversion is the second most important event in human history after Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection. That this is by far the second most important event that took place in Christian history. Why? So important that Luke, the author of this book, Acts, actually mentions it three times. Not only in chapter 9 today, but again in chapter 26 and 22 to emphasize the fact that Saul's conversion is very, very important. Why? Because, as you know, as Saul um, converts, becomes Paul, he writes majority of the New Testament, as we know it, and he becomes the number one missionary who spreads out the gospel message throughout the world. And so one could argue that this becomes a foundation in which expansion of Christianity begins. It's so emphasized and highlighted that in 18th century, there were two young men in England whose names were Lord Littleton and Gilbert West. And they were unbelievers, and they were very brilliant lawyers, and they were great friends. So one day at a bar, as they're talking over uh, beer, they said, you know what, Christianity, it's so stupid. It doesn't make any sense. 
So these two brothers, lawyers, decided to talk to each other and said, you know what, let's write books. You write one, I write one, and we will debunk this myth of Christianity. So they decided to talk among themselves and decided that there's only two uh, things that actually support Christianity so that if we can debunk these two myths, then all of Christianity will actually fall like house of cards. And so their assumption was that Christianity stood upon a very unstable foundation. And the two uh, moments in history, two facts or myths according to them that they wanted to debunk were the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the conversion of Saul. So Gilbert West said to Littleton, all right then, I'll write a book on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and disprove it. And Littleton said, if you write a book on resurrection, I'll write it on conversion of Paul and how that's false. So months go by and and they get back after their research. And one says to the other, I must confess, the more and more I read and research about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I think it's true. (laughs) And then the other brother, Littleton, responded, you know what, a weird thing's happening to me too. The more and more I study about the conversion of Saul, I'm more convicted that this is a true story. But they say, you know what, let's take a little bit more time to research on these two stories. So they go about their own ways and they finally get back. What eventually happens is uh, these two brothers who are now in Christ, Lord Littleton and Gilbert West, both write uh, uh, books on their own. And Gilbert West ends up writing a book called The Resurrection of Jesus Christ, arguing that in fact, Jesus' resurrection is true as he accepted Jesus Christ in his life. And Lord Littleton wrote the book called The Conversion of St. Paul and how this conversion of Paul was actual fact in history. So many theologians and historians like these two and more have written about the conversion of Saul right after the resurrection death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because we think that this is very important. It's a pivot on which the future of the church turned. And perhaps it's fitting that we place so much emphasis because it's such a unique conversion story to a unique man. Who was Saul? Saul by birth was a Jew. By conviction, he was a Pharisee. By citizenship though, he was a Roman By education, he was Greek, and then by grace, he becomes a Christian. He's a very complicated man, right? And he grew up in Tarsus, uh, the city who's a, it's a cosmopolitan city, and one of the things that Tarsus was known for was their university, because it was among the top three in that region, okay? It'd be considered one of the Ivy League schools like Princeton, Harvard, and Yale, and um, all these folks, people who traded, people who wanted to learn, would congregate in Tarsus. And this is the city in which Saul was born into and grew up. So imagine, even at a young age, he's receiving amazing education. Learning about culture, about the world, but especially about Judaism and what it means to be a good Roman citizen. Because Saul's father was also a Roman citizen, but a Jew. And his father was a Pharisee himself. So imagine what kind of life, what kind of household Saul would have grown up in. 
right? It's exactly what you would expect. A man who was a Pharisee, who wanted to and knew so much about the law of the Old Testament and held it, right, to the highest standard and high, highest degree that upholding the law and the Jewish tra- tradition at all costs became the number one thing that he was supposed to do and he lived for. So in keeping up with the Jewish tradition, when he was growing up in Tarsus, actually all the boys growing up had to learn a trade for for Saul, it was learning how to weave in and out cloth uh, from goat's hair to make tents. But when he became about 13 or 14, young teenagers, it was common that the Jewish boys were sent off to study uh, in, in Jewish culture and history, and especially the Old Testament, especially if household had people who were leaders of the Jewish faith. So having a father like he did, Saul gets sent off to Jerusalem to learn on, under uh, an amazing leader, amazing uh, highest level from a teacher named Gamaliel, right? So he begins his apprenticeship under Gamaliel, and Gamaliel was so elevated and so revered as a teacher that his nickname was the beauty of the law, meaning that when he spoke the law and when he talked about the law, there was nothing more beautiful. So Saul at a young age, comes to Jerusalem and starts learning under a teacher like this. With the family background and the history, and now a high education in Jewish tradition and the law. He spent years memorizing Old Testament, years learning how to theologically debate with others, and spent years studying the law in the Old Testament, how to keep it and how not to break it. So it is possible that before Jesus actually begins his ministry, Saul had finished his education in Jerusalem and actually returned to Tarsus. And he begins, not a rampage yet, but he begins to understand the culture milieu of what's going on around him. And he begins to become a critical leader in the synagogue. He's very rigid, he's very ambitious, and very legalistic. However, some Years later, he actually returns to Jerusalem. And this is what we read in chapter 7. When Stephen comes into scene, Saul comes back to Jerusalem to begin his persecution of Christians. For he heard that there's a man named Stephen and among, along with them many other Christian leaders who were proposing, teaching, and preaching that only Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and resurrection is necessary in order for your sins to be covered. But that's not what the Pharisees said. That's not what we learn in the Old Testament. So to Saul, to be able to uh, become a follower of Jesus Christ and to be able to preach and teach that only Christ was necessary, not the law. Law is needed, but at the end of the day, it's Jesus Christ himself that you need, a relationship with him, was blasphemy. So he begins his persecution, right? So we're introduced in the book of Acts. In chapter 7, Saul, as he's standing there, as Stephen's about to be stoned to death, right, last week, Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jews, come out to kill Stephen, and they took off their cloak and placed it before Saul's feet to tell him, you're our leader. We're going to kill this man. And Saul gives a thumbs up. And immediately after that, in chapter 8 of Acts, we see the full blast of Saul 
full blast of his anger and persecution. That it says all those Christians started scattered all over the place except the disciples of Jesus Christ. So Saul begins to lead this all-out persecution. And in hindsight, Paul eventually writes how much the, the stoning of Stephen actually impacted him. But see, at this moment, in beginning of chapter 9, he's nowhere there. He's ready to find every Christian possible, every Christ follower possible, persecute them, jail them, and potentially even kill them. So although he was provoked and inspired by Stephen and how he died, how boldly he claimed to the gospel message till he uh, breath his, had his last breath, right? To Saul at chapter 9, it's just a provoking thought in his mind. So Saul becomes the number one enemy of Christians in Jerusalem and around. Luke really stresses this so that in chapter 8, verse 3, Paul was ravaging the church and entering house to house. He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. This word ravaging in Greek connotes the fact that when a wild boar comes to a, a, a field, a farm, mostly a vineyard, and literally just rampages and kills it. Ravage. Then in Acts 9, 1, 2, today, Luke says that Saul was not just threatening the Christian. It says he was breathing threats as though persecution was the air he breathed. You know, there are things that we love and enjoy, right? You have a hard day at work, and you really, really look forward to coming home and seeing your children, maybe for like a minute, but nonetheless, you really look forward to that moment as your kids come up and greet you. Or there's a TV show or, or a, a game on TV or a movie that you really wanted to do, that you're really excited about, or a date that you're about to go on that you're really excited about. Things that we get up in the morning and say, this is why I breathe. This is why I live. This is why Saul lived, Right? He breathed persecution. He breathed hatred toward Christians. That this is the only thing that he desired and that thing made him get up every morning and said, yes, I get to kill Christians. I get to capture them. So much so that in chapter 9, what's happening is he goes to the leaders in Jerusalem and says, give me legal permission. Give me some people with me so I can travel to Damascus. I'm done here in Jerusalem or you guys can finish it off. I'm going to go up to uh, Damascus, which is about 140 miles up north from where he was in Jerusalem, and says, give me some men. I'm going to go there and start persecuting Christians who live there too. So he's expanding his persecution outside of Jerusalem. See how evil of a man he was? So if we read in chapter 9, it's not just him traveling to Damascus. There are many other men following with him, perhaps soldiers, perhaps just followers or disciples of Saul by now perhaps other Pharisees who really just wanted to eyewitness the persecution of Christians. So Saul begins to travel, and on his way to Damascus, Jesus shows up through a light that is so blinding that he, it says, many theologians argue that even though he regained his sight, it was never the same physically, that he almost lived his entire life not being able to really see well. He doesn't eat for three days. He doesn't drink for three days. As God called out his name, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
There, this is the kind of a person that no one expects to be converted, let alone used by God. I mean, why would God use a man like Saul, a man who went around viciously persecuting Christians? This is the kind of person that no one expects to be converted, let alone used by God. Let me translate it in today's context. If there was a man like Saul alive today, it would be like Osama bin Laden getting converted and becoming a Christian missionary to all the Muslims in Saudi Arabia. It would be like Kim Jong-un getting converted and becoming a Christian missionary to North Korea and changing the entire nation to follow after Christ. This would be equivalent to ISIS leaders getting converted and becoming Christian missionary to Muslim extremists in Syria and Iraq. See how crazy it is? Sometimes those of us who grew up in the church or those of us who heard about Paul because he's written so much for the Christian tradition and the, all the New Testament, we forget his conversion. We forget how drastic of a life change he's had. Think about Saul. He breathed, he lived to persecute Christians and when he meets Jesus, he has to change everything about who he is. It's a terrorist becoming a missionary. It's not somebody who just disliked. It's somebody who went after and killed Christians who transforms his life because he meets Jesus Christ in the form of light on his road to Damascus. I wonder sometimes if what Saul was thinking, right? He meets Jesus. He gets blinded. He goes to Damascus, right? And he can't eat for three days. He can't drink for three days. He's blind. What was he thinking? I wonder if Saul was thinking about how the more he dragged those Christian men and women to prison, how that satisfaction that he thought he would always be fulfilled, why it wasn't fulfilling himself. He has this spiritual, psychological, physical detox for these three days. And as he does, I wonder if he kept asking himself this question. Why doesn't my absolute obedience to the law bring me peace in my soul? Saul tries so hard to separate himself from the impurities of the world. To follow the law, be a good Jew, be a good Pharisee. And yet he meets Jesus and his life is flipped upside down. I wonder if he had thoughts like this. The more you strive to be perfect on your own and earn your way to salvation, the more you realize your shortcomings. The more you realize your shortcomings, the less you like about yourself. The less you like about yourself, the less you're going to love others. I wonder if Saul was realizing this. and I wonder if Saul was thinking about this. One pastor puts it this way, Within Saul, there must have been two sets of conviction that were in such radical opposition that he had to burn what he had adored and adore what he had burned. But no matter what was happening in Saul's inner thoughts, his actions proved that he was a vicious man. But this all changes with one encounter with the Lord. One short encounter. So now Saul encountered God. 
What happens next? You know, it's interesting. Immediately after he encounters God and God says, Saul, why do you persecute me? He's blinded. He doesn't want to eat. He doesn't want to drink. He gets led to Damascus with the men that he's going, he's going with. And he ends up at a house of Judas. A stranger that he doesn't know. Right? And then soon thereafter, he's visited by another man named Ananias that he doesn't know. And he begins to commune and fellowship with these two brothers in Christ. And healing happens. He begins to see what it means to follow after Christ, what it means to have a community of believers with them. Imagine if you're Ananias and Judas. I, I don't want a man like Saul in my house. I mean, you see the pushback on Ananias against God when God said, Ananias, I have a great you know, plan for you. I need you to go. It's so funny, right? Go to this street to a man named Judas. Go to his house and you will meet another man from Tarsus named Saul. And Ananias thinking, whoa, I know who he is. He's the reason why we're all hiding. He's the reason why we're all threatened. And now, God, you're telling me to go and share the gospel message with him, let alone baptize him and heal him? So reluctantly, Ananias goes. And this is a funny irony of it all. If there's a biggest irony in this story, it's that Saul, right, becomes the number one missionary in Christian history. But in a humorous way, I feel like the Holy Spirit also threw in these two names. I mean, Ananias and Judas, these are tainted names in New Testament, right? If you know anything about Christian history, Judas is the man, right, who sells off and betrays Jesus Christ, right? Ananias, we read a couple chapters before in Acts, he's the man who lied and deceived so that he got killed on the spot. These two men, Ananias and Judas, are not the same people, but I think it's just funny that God uses these names, right? And Luke mentions it. And through these two men who have tainted names, although they're amazing disciples of God, Saul begins to see the life forever differently. It says that scales fell from his eyes and began to see again, but never again he lived his life with the same vision, ever. Saul encountered God and he was transformed. And that's what conversion is. Conversion is this powerful, personal encounter with God. An encounter with God that we can't deny, encounter with God that we can't just run away from forever. God came. Paul was blinded. Life changes forever. Our encounter with God may not be as flashy, sudden, or painful as Saul's, but to experience a conversion is to encounter our Lord who makes us reconsider who we were, who we are, and who we will be. So Saul's conversion here is not, is not a model of conversion for all of us. 
how we are to transform or how we are to come to Christ. But it is an example of how far God is willing to go in order to show the depth of His grace and love. Paul's story, this conversion, is not something that we should strive for, not that we could ever, but our conversion stories are not supposed to be exactly like Paul. There are various ways that we are converted, various ways that we encounter Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. But there's one factor that never changes. In all conversion stories, all conversion experience, one thing doesn't change. And that is that God forgives. God forgives us as He encounters us. And without such forgiveness, without accepting and understanding such forgiveness, there is no conversion. God forgives even those least likely in our minds. His forgiveness alone makes love possible. His forgiveness alone makes conversions possible. His forgiveness alone makes our life possible. And if you try to reject such amazing forgiveness of our Lord and try to be righteous like Saul did once in his lifetime, try to be righteous, follow the law, then I will earn God's salvation. If you reject such amazing forgiveness, listen carefully, very carefully, and perhaps you too will hear God's voice speaking to you. Matthew, John, Joe, Jennifer, Michelle, Why do you persecute me? Sure, we don't go around kill other Christians. We're not going around imprisoning other Christian brothers and sisters. But for our persecution of God and his people may not look exactly like Saul's. Perhaps this is a difficult thought, hard one to swallow. But maybe we persecute our Lord in different ways especially for those of us here today, those of us who live in the U.S. Perhaps we persecute God by complacently forgetting about those who are being abused, sold, and tortured. As we complacently forget about those who are in need right here in our neighborhoods. As we complacently forget about those who are risking their lives to share the gospel message today all over the world. Saul's conversion teaches us then that all of us are in need of such amazing grace and that all of us are called to pray and hope that like Saul, those brothers and sisters around us and far will experience such conversion as Christ comes to them and forgives them. Let us pray.